Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on November the 28th, 2012. For newcomers, as always, I get this out the road right away at the beginning of the broadcast to tell you to make sure that you use CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. You'll find lots and lots of audios for free download and transcripts too and all the sites listed on the com site for print up as well. And you can get transcripts of the talks I've given in other languages if you go into Alan Watts Sentient, sentinel.eu. And you can take up your, your, your choice from there. And remember too, you are the audience that bring me to you because I don't bring on advertisers as guests. I don't sell products. All I have is the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com to get through. And I certainly could go the commercial way, no, no problem at all. But uh, I've been doing this way to try to keep uh, honesty in it because you you can compromise if you start selling all kinds of products with various claims and so on. So it's up to you, the listeners, to keep me going by buying the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and uh, show some kind of appreciation for... Because I know there's lots and lots of authors out there been using my stuff over the years because I get feedback from the American author societies and various other groups and individuals. And I don't have time to turn out the books myself because uh, I'm doing a show like this, which takes all day, basically, to get anything decent worth reading. And uh, so you can support me, as I say, by buying the books and discs. And from the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can use personal checks to Canada, and you can still use international postal money orders from the post office. You can also send cash, or you can use PayPal. And across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal. Straight donations, as always, are awfully, awfully welcome. But we do live in this time of an age of transition, they call it, the age of transition and this century of change. I keep stressing this because academia talked about this for an awful long time in the 20th century. This is a time when the planned society for the, for the planned world all has to take shape and come to total, complete fruition, be completed in this century. And you're seeing the beginnings of it. What you're seeing at the moment is disrupting everything. This is just the beginning of where they want to take the entire world. And these globalists have been at this for an awful long time, centuries, in, in fact, setting this whole thing up. Most of it's done through treaties, uh, through the United Nations, because the United Nations was set up the same boys who came up with this whole global idea in the first place, who were really members of the Royal Institute for International Affairs in London big bankers, international lenders, and they got a royal charter to exist. They're a private organization. They have council and foreign relations members in other countries, and uh, they uh, all work together. They're all members of the same group, really, and they are working in every government across the planet to bring in this society. And they groom their members very young, and they can even tell them when they're very young when they're going to make them a prime minister or a president because they give you your presidents and prime ministers. That's how, how completely organized this incredible system is. 
and through the United Nations and their umbrella organizations and their foundations, which employ thousands of non-governmental organizations, uh, it's all coming to pass as we live, and people are seeing uh, the fallout from a thousand, maybe thousands of different areas actually hitting them at once, and they're trying to fight it by, by simply complaining. All we're doing is bitching about it. And they don't really understand what's behind it, the big picture, as I say, behind it, the massive organizational abilities of those at the top. You already have a global government. You don't have to need a base for it even, because it's already there. It's already there with its machinery all set up and working as we speak. And long ago, the boys knew this; they could bring this off quite easily by taking over and globalizing, standardizing everything across the world, starting, of course, with your schools and then treaties for all businesses. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, talking about the big system we're born into and that no one explains to you. And everyone hears other people complaining about what's happening to them personally, or oh, look at this and oh, look at that, which the media throws out to you every day to complain about. But they don't go into the big things behind things. What's behind all that, as they call it? And unless you understand what's behind it all, you won't understand even what you're complaining about, never mind what you're trying to fight. And what you're trying to fight is something so incredibly overwhelming because it's an entirely new system of controlling the planet, everything on the planet, and everybody on the planet. All economies, all resources, all taxations, all energy, everything, basically, by uh, uh, the mixing of international corporations and uh, philanthropies, by the way, that have got a big deal to do with it, are generally owned by the same guys who own the corporations, which is international lenders themselves, who set up the stuff under their own issue of international affairs. And they've pretty well pulled it off in a 100 years. They've got exactly what they want through treaties and so on. But the money system stays, stays the same, and the same people controlling the money system stays the same, because you see, as I say, the guys who designed the system were money boys themselves, and they had no intention of ever lowering their own standards of living as they brought so-called democracy across the world. Democracy is a cover for this totalitarian system, for those who haven't quite got it. Uh, and they, all, they always use democracy to those who are under obvious totalitarian authorities. But we're, we're the same ourselves now. We just don't know it yet. It's more evident in some countries like Britain and the U.S. after 9-11. And it's really steamrolling our heads. But uh, they still, even there, they still don't have, quite get it, that this is a, for a permanent thing. It's not going to change. It's going to get worse. But here's an article here, for instance, about... The, the, the venture capitalists that are called vulture capitalists. I've mentioned vulture capitalists before. And it says the ambassador from Argentina sees vulture capitalists circling the shaky economy of his South American nation. Ambassador George uh, Arguello is outraged by New York investors who are demanding that they be paid the full amount on bonds they bought at fire sale prices in 2001 after the Argentine economy collapsed. I can remember when it happened because uh, the people the people chased, they were going after the banking families. 
down there. And they were given sanctuary in Canada. They all ran up to Canada. It was in the newspapers at the time. And I often wonder if these banking families were working with these guys in New York who stepped in to buy uh, all the stocks up for pennies and a dollar. Anyway, it says he's complaining about the speculators such as billionaire Paul Singer, who's refused to be shortchanged on his claim of $1.6 billion and has persuaded the West African nation of Ghana to seize an Argentine naval training ship as collateral. In an open letter posted in the Argentine embassy's website, Mr. Arguello denounced Mr. Singer for buying Argentina government bonds for pennies on the dollar and now demanding a full repayment. He noted that many other creditors settled for a 70% loss on their investments in a government bond restructuring about six years ago. But not Mr. Singer, you see, pound of flesh and so on, all that stuff. So today it's clear to everyone who the vulture funds are and how they operate and what their essence is, speculation. I think it's more than speculation. I think, I think it's international gangsterism myself. And they cause the problems and then they go in and buy up things for a penny and a dollar. And they've got the full force of the law since they run the law systems as well. Anyway, it says, uh, the entire world is watching even more closely how this confrontation will evolve. A confrontation between a law-abiding country and governments that honors their debts and a group of speculators who insist on flapping their wings like vultures. The vultures landed last week in a New York courtroom where U.S. District Judge Thomas Gresa ordered the government of President Cristina Fernandez to pay $1.3 billion to Mr. Singer and other investors who refused to renegotiate their investments. The case ended up in a U.S. federal court because Argentina agreed to abide by U.S. law when it sold the original bonds in the United States. The judge also barred Argentina from paying the bondholders who accepted the lower bond payments before settling with Mr. Singer and his fellow plaintiffs. After 10 years of litigation, this is a just result, says Judge Griesa. So, you can't win with them, you see. It's international gangsterism. And they can cause the problems, and they can profit from the problems too. And then another article up too, on the same thing again, uh, to do with uh, the judge basically going ahead with this. And uh, I think there's a little video on it too, but I'll put this up as well. There's two articles on this, and it'll be forgotten, of course. But this, is, this has been going on forever, you understand. That there's definitely organized crime in, in banking and banking families. There's no doubt about it. It always has been. Now, for those who are really into austerity times and you're freezing in Britain as you cut back on your heating because of the cost of energy and all the rest of it, carbon taxes and goodness knows what else, uh, then uh, I'll put up an article tonight. It says, The Queen toasts the Emir of Kuwait in a state banquet. So she holds a state banquet for, for him. And the reason she's promoting it, you see, is because uh, she paid tribute to Kuwait's promotion of vibrant democracy. You know what Britain has itself, democracy, this democracy thing. So he's promoting democracy, but vibrantly too. And I'll also put up uh, the photograph of the banquet hall uh, and just let you know how, you know, I'm sure they cut all the heating back for the hall that night too and gave them all fur coats and stuff. But that's austerity for you. Now, when you you knock a pillar down uh, that's holding up a massive roof, You weaken all the other pillars. It's quite easy then to knock the second one down, the third one down, and so on. That's why nature basically evolves itself into societies that have basic, basic simple rules. Once you break one of the simple rules, 
for any particular individual or, or group, then it's fair game for the next one. It weakens all the rest of the structure, and society begins to crumble just like the pillars, and down comes the roof. And the, when you give more rights to some, one group, the next group comes along and says, oh, you gave it to them, you've got to give it to us, you see. And it's, that's how it's working. And there's bigger things behind all of this, too, to destroy society, as you know it. That's a definite movement, by the way. It's funded from the top. But here's animal welfare. It says, Germany moves to ban bestiality. Well, they already have it banned. So they're only making it more clear. It's we're clarifying it, basically, what the laws are. But it says, Germany's ruling coalition is calling for a ban on bestiality or the practice of having sex with animals. The German Parliament's Agricultural Committee is... Um, concerned making it an offence not only to hurt an animal, but also to force it into unnatural sex, as with, with other species. Offenders could face a hefty fine. And the final vote will be held in Bundestag uh, on 14th December. Germany legalised bestiality, zoophilia they call it, in 1969, except when the animal suffered significant harm. I guess the animal must have gone to the court and complained, right? You understand how mad things get when you get off the basic track of common sense and sensibility. But animal rights groups have campaigned for a change in the law, and Hans Michael Goldman, head of the Parliamentary Committee investigating the new amendment, told the Tagesetung newspaper that the new legislation was intended to clarify the current legal position. With this explicit ban, it will be easier to impose penalties and to improve animal protection. So there's a fine of, of 25,000 euros if proposed if someone forces an animal to commit actions alien to the species. And then it says here, uh, but Michael Keok, uh, unfortunate name if you take away the eye, it says that the chairman of the pressure group Zoophile Engagement for Tolerance and Information said he was going to take legal action to fight the proposed changes. It's unthinkable that any sexual act with an animal is punished without proof that the animal has come to any harm, he said, adding that animals are capable of showing what they do or do not want to do. We see animals as partners. Oh, they're partners now. And not as a means of gratification. We don't force them to do anything. They just talk them into, of course. Animals are much easier to understand than women, <laughs> Mr. Keok claimed, he said. So there you go. There you go. And... um this is a law was changed in the UK in 2003, which reduced the maximum sentence from life imprisonment to two years. The act, however, is permissible in Belgium, Denmark and Sweden, though Stockholm is considering a change in the legislation, it says. So there you go. Down go the pillars you know, and, and so on. And out comes the groups that's actually indulging in this strange act. And they'll probably get the rights regardless because they go to the United Nations. You know, the United Nations is meant to destroy all that was to bring in the new, which is them, totalitarian rule worldwide. Now, in, in Britain too, the taxman is going SWAT, you know, James Bond SWAT stuff. This says, taxman seeks permission to break speed limits along with the 999 crews, that's emergency crews, and so on. And it says, um, bomb disposal units, the blood transfusion service, and mountain and mine rescue teams could also be included. Security services are also seeking permission under new initiative currently under consultation. So it says, um, HM Revenue and Customs wants to join the police, fire, and ambulance, and life-saving crews who have special exemption from obeying the speed limits. And it says the proposals out for consultation examine the possibility of extending speed limit exemptions to other services apart from police, fire and ambulance. 
But then they go into other things too, that all the cases they're pursuing it all the time, it's just like high, it's like James Bond stuff, chasing all these illegal stuff that's going on, etc. And they have to have all these special powers. So uh, there you go, uh, the tax, uh, the, the voluntary income tax, you know, the, the wartime taxes that they introduced temporarily, etc. And this is a good one here because if you're brought up in a totalitarian system, wherever the state and its organs, which are generally all the media of the state, um, say something, you'll believe it. You believe because you've been trained to believe it. And you wouldn't imagine that you've been conned or there's a joke in it, even a joke in there, actually. But um, it says the online version of the Chinese Communist Party's official newspaper appears to have fallen for a spoof by the U.S. satirical website called The Onion. And we'll, we'll see about what the onions peeled in, in China when we come back after these messages. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix. And reading about the spoof and it went into China and, and they believed it and they printed it in their main newspaper. And it says, um, it says the People's Daily ran a 55 page photo spread of North Korean leader Kim Jong Un after he was declared the onion's sexiest man alive for 2012. He's shown riding horses, holding children and greeting his troops. The spare is accompanied by tongue-in-cheek quotes from The Onion about the Pyongyang that says born heart throb. With his devastatingly handsome round face, his boyish charm and his strong sturdy frame, this Pyongyang born heart throb is every woman's dream come true, with the people's daily quoted The Onion as saying. Blessed with an air of power that mass and unmistakable cute cuddly side, Kim made this newspaper's editorial board swoon with his impeccable fashion sense, his, his chic short hairstyle, and of course that famous smile that says, uh, so... It says here that uh, one of the freelance journalists said it's amazing that People's Daily doesn't know that The Onion is a satirical website. Now they're, la- they're the laughing stock of the world media. So... It just shows you, again, they're in a totalitarian system that really is so straight-faced about everything. And uh, and mind you, too, there's a lot of stuff they come out with it that you should be laughing at, but they don't because they're trained that way under totalitarian regimes. It's kind of dangerous to laugh at the wrong time. But there you go, uh, actually published that. And we'll see the same here, too. I mean, when you look at the United Nations declarations, too, they seem so ludicrous. And yet people just, you know, oh, well, it doesn't affect me, but it actually does affect you. It affects everyone in the world. Also tonight, it just ties in with what I mentioned last week about um, technocracy, which is a science supposedly of running the world where everyone will be based, all, all, all monies will be based on energy outputs and consumptions. An old idea that came forward during FDR's day. In fact, the guy who invented it wanted to make FDR the, uh, uh, basically um, a despot to rule, to rule America and become a dictator. And I never threw it away, of course, because you see, all these organizations are associated, they all come out of one organization. Communism, socialism, all of them come out with the same organization, and it's run at the top by capitalism, for those who haven't figured that out. But um, it says, um, they want a parliament of the world, and all the idea goes back into the 1800s, too. And um, 
it says here, Congress of the State of Jalisco supports appeal for United Nations Parliamentary Assembly. It's a Congress. It means a, a government, folks, for those who haven't got it. And it's from the Campaign for a United Nations Parliament. And it goes through this um, Mexican state, one of the latest ones to join. Joint International Appeal for the Establishment of United Nations Parliamentary Assembly. A ceremony that was held last week in the state's capital. It's an agreement to, to that effect was formally signed. The appeal is addressed to the United Nations and the governments of its member states, including Mexico, and calls on them to implement democratic participation and representation at the global level. And it goes through the different members from that particular country who are there and attended it and so on. And along with that, I'll put up a few other ones. Here's one, for instance, that says, in the second interview for the United Nations Parliamentary Assembly campaign, it says, I talked to Andreas Gross, a member of the parliament from Switzerland. A lot of your parliamentarians are already in it. And you're, you see them in America too, by the way. Uh, Americans don't know that. Many of their politicians are member, or members are pushing. For, they also call it the World Federalist Society. And they actually, there are a whole bunch of them all working the same goal of a, a parliament of the world. I think Shelley talked about it too, you see. So anyway, he says, Andrea Gross, a member of parliament from Switzerland and chair of the socialist group in the parliamentary assembly of the Council of Europe, uh, who recently participated in the World Forum for Democracy in Strasbourg, which was organized by the Council of Europe. And the Council of Europe are the guys that was set up by the Royal Institute of International Affairs, who also picked the communist side of things to bring all this to be. It would all be run in a communistic fashion at the bottom, the masses, that is, so the elite above us can, can relax and put their feet up, you know. And it says, as a step towards global democracy, Andreas Gross advocates the globalization of the Strasbourg model, it says here. After a stint as a professional journalist, Andreas obtained a degree in political science and co-founded the workshop for direct democracy in Zurich, Switzerland in 1988. He was elected to the Municipal Council of the City of Zurich in 1986 and then to the National Council in 91. He was one of the key persons who fought for Switzerland to join the United Nations and is an internationally recognized expert on direct democracy. An expert on direct democracy, but that was like revolution for, with the red flag and all that. In June 2003, he was appointed Special Rapporteur on the Political Situation in Chechnya for the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. So go through his different credentials and all the rest of things. And they have a chat on here with this guy about the World Forum for Democracy and other things that are happening. And it's an audio transcript of the interview here, plus a, uh, a written transcript as well. And uh, so here the audio or the, or the transcript, I should say. Another one, too, is this one here. Uh, it's called, it's from the same group, by the way, for a United Nations Parliamentary Assembly. The documentary film, uh, World Vote Now, is called, that premiered three years ago and runs over 77 minutes, was now released in full length at vimeopro.com. So I'll put that link up and you can actually hear, uh, these, uh, these feral, uh, globalists prattle on about the wonderful society of, of communism they're going to run over us because they'll be the leaders you see communist leaders will always live awfully well really high you know pretty high on living standards so the movie that was shot from 2001 to 2009 in 26 countries explores the possibility of a world referendum and features interviews with people from all walks of life except the ordinary folks like you back with more after this You're listening.
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix talking about the big campaign that's been going on for many, many years, campaign for United Nations Parliament of the World. It's a parliamentary assembly, they call it. And to do with their, their video now is out, so um, I'll put this link up tonight. And they go through, it says this, that the fundamental and simple idea behind the film is that if democracy is such a beneficial way to improve the governance and development of so many countries and their people, why not try it at the global level as well? When we made the world vote now, nobody could have predicted that it would be democratic revolutions and mass uprisings from Egypt to Wall Street, from Spain to Russia. Oh yeah, they did, because you see, the same boys at the Royal Institute of International Affairs with the MI6, CIA and all that, trained all these revolutionaries and soft powers, as they call them, NGOs, to infiltrate these countries and riot from within. Uh, Brzezinski even went through that himself, so... I'll put this link up tonight too, and you can see that for yourselves. But um, this is a, a very real deal, and of course it's definitely going to go that way. First they wanted a united Europe, remember, and then a united Americas. We're already going, still working on that, by the way. We're still integrating with, with the U.S. and and Latin America. And then the Far Eastern Pacific Rim regions all came out of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations. They designed all of these a long time ago. And yet you go into their own records and you'll find it. Now, here's another article, too, from another member of the European Parliament, Joe Lenin, it's like Lenin, isn't it, explains why we urgently need a United Nations Parliamentary Assembly. And it says, in his first interview from the, for the UNPA campaign's new blog, I talked to Joe Lenin from Germany, who has been a member of the European Parliament since 1999, and who acts as co-chair of the UNPA campaign's parliamentary advisory group. Now remember, too, the Royal of International Affairs, and you've got to get Quigley's book on the Anglo-American establishment, because he goes through a lot of the setup for this very, very system, and how they get three trading blocks, and then they'd merge them together under a world parliament. And they set up the United Nations. That's who set up the United Nations. Some other, other things, Joe Lennon was served as president of the European Federal, uh, European Federalists, and he's now president of the European Movement International. I think Hillary Clinton is a member of, of the, the World Federalist Society. So was, uh, was it Dan Rather and a few other ones as well. And it says, from 2004 to 2009, Joe Lennon was chair of the European Parliament's Committee on Constitutional Affairs, and from 2009 to, to January 2012, on the Committee on Environment and Consumer Safety. So they asked him why a UN Parliamentary Assembly is important, whether lessons to be drawn from the European Parliament, and how he came to support the idea. And it says, and then they go through the talk, you know, and the guy explains it, really, uh, how, why he got into it and all the rest. But actually he's been told to get into it. He's probably been bred to get into it, actually. And I'm not kidding about that, too. Because they're generally intergenerational, these guys. Since more than 10 years ago, I thought that global problems need global solutions, and the decision-making on the global level should be democratically accountable. So we needed a citizen's chamber, the parliaments, to play a big role in the global level. And he participates in various climate conferences. It's all, they use all the same techniques, uh, all environment, all, all the things, the same things were put out there by the boys at the top for the, for the new world that's coming in. All the excuses like climate stuff and so on. They're all involved. They run, they run all these things, these guys, and they're complete globalists and utter socialists. But they live like multimillionaires ruling over you, you understand. 
It's great to be a communist if you're ruling over millions of people. And so I could see the stalemate of diplomats that are not able to find a good solution. I'm sure that citizen representatives like parliamentarians could give a new dynamic, a new push to the global concern, and even saving this, this global good, the atmosphere which belongs to all of us. So I think there would be a new element in global politics of if parliamentarians came in better than now, he says. And then he prattles on about his, his same spiel of, of uh, you know, all the reasons they have to have a global parliament. Anything will do. But mind you, as I said, they always give you the reasons and to institutionalize the terminology, by the way. You know, Lenin says we shall win by slogans and you've all the terms already in your brain that have been institutionalized through every talk you've heard, government on energy and climate change and all this. I mean, they, they've got it embedded everywhere, you see. Also in this article too, uh, manifesto for Global Democracy and Proposal for United Nations Parliamentary Assembly presented. So I'll, I'll put up the manifesto for it. always have manifesto, as you understand. And it's all funded by the international corporations as well. They fund the communist side, you see, because that's who's going to govern all of you and make it easier for the, for the CEOs, the corporations to, to be left alone, you see. You, 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 they won't take any heat at all. And it gives you all the list of different people across the world who are parts of it and people who are Pulitzer Prize winners and all the rest of it and, and top scientists. They're all members of this World Parliamentary Association. Twenty Nobel laureates so far on record who supported the World Parliament. I'll put that up as well for those who care to have a, a gander at it. Very, very real because you're going to understand that... Um, this is affecting all your lives. Everything is interconnected today, for those who don't get it. Well, everything to do with economics. Your international banking system was set up by the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Your central banking system, all under the Bank for International Settlements, was set up by the, for the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And uh, the United Nations was set up by them too. Their branch in America drafted up the amalgamation for the Americas under NAFTA and GATS. They came out themselves. The Council on Foreign Relations came out in Canadian television and said so. So uh, these are all unelected institutions and groups. They're private organizations. But they've been running the world for well over 100 years under different names. But for the last, oh, yeah, 100 years, they've been using these particular titles. But they go through the whole uh, techniques that they're using and all the declarations they've got out and they get treaties signed. And as I said, they get all the top scientists on board with it. They talk about the... They, they even go into the past too. Einstein, of course, was a globalist. It says in Thomas Mann literature, John Boyd or Pierce, Albert Camus, I believe in the necessity of supranational integration. That's complete integration. That's doing away with the nations. Exactly what uh, international communism was, was built to be, you see. And a global parliament. The latter two actively supported the, wolf, the world federalist movement. Uh, you'd be surprised how many of your reporters belong to CFR and world federalist movements. Even the one that said that that's just the way it is. The guy, one of the main guys who gave Americans their news all through the Vietnam War and so on. He was a member of the world federalist movement. In 2004, the World Campaign for In-Depth Reform of the System of International Institutions published its London Declaration. They're also given declarations and manifestos. London Declaration, I've got the links here too, which included a call for the world's citizens to be directly represented in the international institutions and said that work could move towards creating a parliamentary assembly for the world. 
Among other things, the declaration was endorsed by Nobel laureates, and it gives you the names of them, and, um, and so on. When the Committee for a World Parliament was formed in Paris in mid-1990s, it was immediately supported by Nobel Peace laureates Nelson Mandela, well, naturally, and Simon Perez. The Peace Nobel Prize laureate of 1983, uh, Lech Walesa, uh, in interviews and speeches, has also repeatedly talked about the need for a global parliament. And there's many, many more, of course. Also, Tonight, I'll talk about, again, the United Nations, and uh, it's amazing. See, they've got fingers in every pie, every pie, right down to your family, by the way, and your schooling of your children, and particular indoctrination, of, right down to masturbation of your children. I've gone through that before. They actually want that to be taught in school. I mean, like, openly. I mean, like, practical practice, you know? And I mentioned all of these things in the past. But anyway... Global, this is from the United Nations too. Global Pulse is an innovation initiative of the United Nations Secretary General harnessing today's new world of digital data and real-time analytics to gain a better understanding of changes in human well-being. As you go into austerity, you see, and get your new indoctrination, just, just, just be happy. If you can't get happy, we'll give you pharma drugs and stuff and make you happy. Exactly what we know Brave New World was about too. You had your soma drugs. They're actually doing it all. They're drugging the children, for goodness sake. And you don't mind. See, you're all contaminated and going down the hill and not allowed all this to happen. You get to a point of contamination where anything goes, and then you steamroll it, and that's it. We're there now. Global Pulse hopes to contribute a future in which access to better information sooner makes it possible to keep international development. You understand there is international development. All these things I'm talking about from United Nations, all these different thousands of NGOs and organizations are all working in different parts of it. This is called international development. And protect the world's most vulnerable populations and strengthen resilience to global shocks, it says. And that's what we're doing in Europe. We're bailing out Europe. Well, and so is America and Canada, by the way, throwing money at there too. Uh, That's throwing money across the whole world, global shocks. Global Pulse uh, functions as an innovative laboratory bringing together expertise from United Nations agencies, governments, academia, and the private sector, international corporations, to research, develop, test, and share tools and approaches for harnessing real-time data for more effective and efficient policy action. So here's United Nations with its policy actions, its manifestos, who nobody elected. We don't elect them. They are non-democratic, but they always use democracy when they want to invade countries using NATO. And it says, our implementation strategy takes a systems-based approach with three interdependent areas of activity. Data research. Global Pulse is discovering new indicators in digital data with the potential to give us real-time understanding of community well-being and real-time feedback on whether our policies and programs are working. Did you know that they've got programs and policies working on you? Did you know that? You don't even know what they are, do you? It's right down to your local area. I-C-L-E-I for, for that's grafted itself on your councils to do with environment, planning permissions and all that kind of, that's all part of it. That's just one of thousands. Technology Toolkit Global Pulse is assembling a toolkit of free and open source software tools that allow development experts to mine real-time data for digital signals, share hypotheses with trusted colleagues and make evidence-based decisions. All your data from your cell phones and everything, these guys are into it in real time. And they got the pulse, that's what they call it, pulse, the pulse of the public, I mentioned this years ago. And they know exactly what people are being sour about one day or happy about the next. They know exactly what to, what to tweak here and tweak there. They even know if you're sour about something, they'll give you a happy story in the media. Tomorrow they'll make it a meme and, and it's bunged out there and you'll be prattling about it. 
That's, you're, you're managed like animals in a cage. I'm not kidding you. It's, it's that detailed. Pulse Lab Network, and it says, uh, Global Pulse is partnering with member states. That's all the nations. To establish an integrated network of country-level innovation centers or pulse labs that will bring together governments, experts, United Nations agencies, academia, and the private sector to pioneer new applications of real-time data to develop challenges. Challenges. Anything that goes against their changes, I think I'll let somehow overcome it. In recent waves of global shocks, food, fuel, and financial have revealed a wide gap between the onset of a global crisis and the availability of actionable information for decision-makers to protect the world's most vulnerable populations. Traditional statistics have been effective in tracking medium- to longer-term development trends, but given the latency of the data generated, are ineffective in generating the type of real-time information decision-makers need and developing timely actions to help vulnerable populations cope with crisis. Now, they don't give a damn about... See, but they use all these weak and all these poor soul and all that third-world countries... Is a, is a front. They have no time for them at all. They've demolished them in the past. The bankers run the United Nations. Don't forget it. And the International Monetary Fund. That gets all these nations in massive debt. Don't forget that. But, uh, so they've got the real-time pulse on you. And, as I say, then you go into this one here on their, their labs. And again, it was into what they're doing, uh, establishing key partnerships, pilot real-time monitoring approaches at the country level, and support adoption of proven approaches globally. And the Pulse Labs operate as hubs where they get all your info coming in. They have experts that can analyze it, even have computers that analyze what you're even yapping about, what your themes are, memes are, and all the rest of it, what your grouches are, what your happy times are. Prototyping countries are self-selected, taking geographic balance into consideration. Host countries must express an explicit interest in hosting a lab, must be willing to share lessons, experiences, and findings with labs in other countries. They'll draw on both uh, uh, the regional expertise of the host countries as well as the international network of United Nations agencies. You, these are all the NGOs and the agencies. They're all working together, all unelected, thousands of groups all financed by big corporations and the foundations, the front groups, the foundations or the money uh, guys. They throw out the trillions of dollars to these NGOs. You're run by a parallel government, a real government. The parallel one is a real one, not the one that you vote in. Quigley himself, who was the historian member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the American branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, he said that. He said that. He says, these guys are, 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 are responsible for every war in the world. But through it all, they're bringing a united planet together. All together. So they're doing it for a good cause, you understand. All this slaughter, etc. It's for a good cause. And they create mayhem across the planet to see, oh, look, Mike, look at the mess. We need a global government, which we will happen to run, you know. And anyway, here they are, right down to, as I say, grabbing all your data daily, uh, in real time. And they know exactly what every little area is talking about and what you're talking about. And you haven't given permission for any of this to be given to them. Never mind what they'll come out with and how to regulate and work on you personally. You don't even know what's happening to you. Also, I'll put up this one too. It ties in with it, by the way. And it's from CERTS. 
and it's, it's the Consortium for Electric Reliability Technology Solutions getting back to um, technocracy, the science of technocracy, energy outputs, energy credits, all that kind of stuff, how you're all going to be taxed and all this kind of stuff, and how big corporations will run you using energy as the currency eventually. And it'll actually be the commodity as well. Right down to a chocolate bar. How much energy it made to make that chocolate bar. You'll pay your carbon taxes on it too and various other things. This is all technocracy. And this one is called, is from CERTS, as I say, Electric, uh, uh, Consortium for Electric Reliability Technology Solutions. Vision, it says, the U.S. electric power system is in the midst of a fundamental transition from a centrally planned and utility-controlled structure to one that will depend on competitive market forces for investment, operations, and reliability management. Electric systems operators are being challenged but to maintain the reliability of the grid and support economic transfers of power as industry structure changes and market rules evolve. What it's about is your tax money going in to these big private corporations that are taking over all the grid, even the public utilities across the world, and they're creating a smart grid worldwide, of course, and if they want electricity in one country and, and to do something special, they'll simply cut you off in some other country or some other area within a country. And this, this, this cert goes into it, and it's a, it's all been done. I mean, you've, when, is, when, were, when are these things even discussed in any government? They're never discussed in any government. You understand, all the big things that happen don't even generally get mentioned in your governments. It's above your government. Your governments are told what to do. Quickly mentioned that they put in your politicians. They have for a hundred years. In every country where the CFR is. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I am Alan Watts. We're cutting through the matrix and just before I take Rick from New York, um, I'll put up again tonight, put all these links up at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. It's called Smart Grid, the Implementation of Technocracy. And uh, I read it last week, at least half of it last week, but it's, you've got to understand what's really happening. You're living through an old script, an old plan. Now we'll see if Rick is still there. You're there, Rick? Yes, Sam. Yes. How are you doing, Mr. Watt? Not too bad at all. Yeah, what I wanted to say is, uh, vis-a-vis the, uh, when you talk about, uh, organizations like the Bank for International Settlements and the Royal Institute of International Affairs, mm-hmm. that, uh, if you look in the history of, uh, Freemasonry, there's a graphic of a, uh, a square and compass, and in between the, the, uh, the two sides of the compass is the, uh, Hammond sickle of the, uh, Marxist, uh, tradition. And what you find is that Karl that, Marx that was also the, was a the symbol of, of the, that was also the symbol of British Freemasonry too. They used the hammer inside the the, the compass, yeah. Yep. But uh, yeah, they, see, the, the revolutionary movements were a front to begin with for the money boys that already existed, and they set up the revolutionary movements to take over this world, and they created Freemasonry. It really broke out in the 1700s. They tried before with Rosicrucians and so on. So on. the Templars and um, being oh, yeah. prosecuted. And then mm-hmm. uh, going on to uh, Scotland and all that, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very, very old thing. But even Albert Pike mentions in his own book, and he was a, basically the Pope of Freemasonry at one time, 
And he said, we always say liberty, equality, and fraternity as we promote revolutions, he says. And then he goes on to tell the truth of the higher members. He says, of course, there can never be liberty for everyone or equality for everyone uh, and so on. He goes through the reasons why there can't be, but that's what they use to promote it. And the, 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 the chanters of this great uh, revolution today for world government are still quoting the same rubbish to the public. They have no intentions of giving the public uh, what you think is liberty and equality. On the contrary, masonry, as Albert Pike said, he said, um, for those who will not use their own intelligence and suss things out for themselves, in other words, if they want to use your own intellect, he says, you're therefore meat on the table and a beast of burden by choice and consent. And yeah, that's Albert exactly Pike, what he had, he, to, um, yeah. he had to, uh, what do you call it, flee to Canada because he was indicted by Lincoln as a war criminal. Well, well, after that, though, they, they, yeah, but then they put, put a big statue of, of him up near Washington, D.C. Yeah, I've seen that, yep, yep. But uh, no, no, Pike was a front man. He spoke fluent Hebrew uh, and various other things, uh, and he was a globalist. And at that time, they had international... You've got to understand that he taught Mazzini, and Mazzini became the international revolutionary for a while, too. Oh, Mazzini st- was, uh, worked with Marx and the... International worker at right. IWMA uh, back in the 1860s in Germany. That's right. And, and so the, these guys have been on the go for a long time, and it's a front. It's a really already a front for a group that previously already existed that ran the world's money and debt and all the rest of it and wanted to run the world properly. But you have to first create a con for the public to follow, and you need the masses to fight for you to do this. And then they do that, and then they take over, and then you end up with what you had in Soviet Russia, where literally it was incredible. It was a class system, believe it or not. Just like, look at, look at China. All the guys who are at the top of the Politburo are multi-billionaires. Oh, and that was like that- uh, in, in Albania on the Enver Hoja's time, where uh, you had military zones, where the uh, elite would do their shopping and send their kids to school and everything. That's right. And then the rest of the society, people were walking around in rags with no food. Well, that, that's it. That's what they're bringing in for the world. They call it austerity, mind you. But as long as you feel well, you've got well-being, you'll be okay. Thanks for calling. From Hamish, myself, Frontier Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>